We are in the book of 1 Thessalonians, chapter 5. If you do not have a Bible, there's one in front of you. You can turn to page uh, 988. It's in the New Testament. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians, chapter 5. We're going to be reading from verses 12 through 22. I'd like if you guys follow along while I read. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. This is the word of the Lord. We uh, return this morning to our exposition of Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians. And uh, it's been a minute, as the kids say. It's hard to believe, but it was uh, exactly a month ago that we left off. And perhaps you'll remember that we left off in the middle of a passage, which uh, I never like to do, but uh, it was necessary. I think you'll agree. It's this section that we find towards the end of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, where Paul gives us a litany of exhortations. And I hope that you have that passage open before you now, because I want to constantly refer you to it. This litany of exhortations, it's not unlike the flurry of commands that your mom might give you as you're scrambling to get out the door to go catch the bus to go to school. I've updated my analogy a little bit. Uh, it's a month later, but I, I think it served us well, so I'll just call you into remembrance of, you won't have to stretch that far to remember how your mom uh, would yell after you and call after you as you're scrambling. She'll say, honey, did you pack your lunch? Um, pay attention to your teacher. Don't forget that permission slip. You know, if it's still summer weather, she'll probably have to say something to you like, are you sure you want to wear that hoodie? And if it's in the middle of winter, she'll no doubt have to say, you need to wear a coat. I don't, I don't know how teenagers thermoregulate, but it's odd. It's odd to say the least. And your mom is right on top of it. And if, if you'd woken up on time, and if she had more time with you, your mom would certainly give you more detailed instructions. You know, she would like to elaborate, give you some longer explanations for the instructions that she did give you. But uh, there was really only time for her to just pepper you with the most pressing concerns. And so it was with the Apostle Paul. You, you recall that what he really wanted to do was visit these believers face to face. 
um, in order to supply what was lacking in their faith, as he puts it in chapter 3, verse 10. He wants to be there in the flesh in order to establish them and exhort them in the true faith. But so far, he's been prevented from doing those things, from making that visit. And so he does the next best thing, which is to write them this letter. And the letter's purpose is to encourage them and to instruct them in various ways. Maybe to remind them of some things that, that he's already instructed them or to bring them into some new areas of instruction. But now, as we see, you can see the white space at the end of your uh, passage here. You know, the time is coming for him to sign off. This letter is wrapping up, which stinks because no doubt... Paul, if he had more time and space, there's much, much more that he would want to say to the Thessalonian believers. So the, so the very best that he can do as he's signing his name is to just fire off a round of commands, kind of like the grand finale at a 4th of July fireworks display. That's how it comes across to us. And the things that the Apostle Paul has to say to, to them and to us are so important that it's worthwhile that we kind of slow down the speed that these commands are coming at us. And, and we, we want to do that in order to really understand them and really apply them to our lives. One of the things that aids in understanding is if we can group these commands into different categories. You know, uh, your, your mom's barrage of instructions, you know, they typically fall into some standard categories. There's, there's commands about manners, there's a whole slew of commands about clothing, about various responsibilities that you have to do, and most importantly, there's a whole series of commands about hygiene. And uh, in the same way, the commands that come to us in, in verses 12 to 22 of this chapter really, I think, can be broken down into five categories. They are exhortations concerning peace, concerning patience, concerning payment, concerning prayer, and concerning prophecies. Five categories of exhortations, and it's just unbelievable to me how they all start with the letter P. But Paul's good. What, what can I say? Well, last time we looked at the first two of these categories of commands. Concerning peace, you know, we looked at verses 12 and 13 to understand the need for peace within and among the body of believers in a local congregation. I'm not just talking about in Thessalonica. I'm talking about in Dansville. There's a need for peace. And certainly there's much, much more that Paul could have said along these lines, but he zeroed in on a major component of peace in the life of a local congregation. A peaceful church is one in which every member respects those who labor among them and who are over them in the Lord. A, a healthy, a peaceful church esteems church leaders very highly in love because of their work. And, and that, Paul is arguing, is a major thing that makes for peace. I'm not just telling you that because I have a vested interest in your obedience to that particular command but because this is the inspired word of God that comes to us through the Apostle Paul. This is a major factor 
towards peace in our church. In the second place, we saw in verse 14 a slew of commands that concerned patience. Patience is the need of the hour when we're dealing with folks who are idle or faint-hearted or weak. You know how this goes. As, as you interact with those sorts of people, those sorts of Christians, the temptation is very strong to become quite frustrated. You know, we, we naturally despise the idol. We don't respect them at all. We recoil from them. And, and, and we, we also are, we, we try to avoid people who are easily discouraged. It's just too much of a drain on you. We get irritated with weak people. We say things like, what is wrong with these people? How many times do I have to tell them the exact same thing over and over again? I've shown them the same verse about 15 times. When are they going to finally stand on their own two feet as far as the faith is concerned? Are they even Christians? We often say these kinds of things to ourselves, but sadly, we also often say these sorts of things to other people about those people. But we're called to be patient with these folks, such as, um, as are described in this text, the idle, the, the faint-hearted, the weak. We're to be patient with them as we lovingly come alongside them and admonish them and encourage them and help them. That's all review. This morning with the time that we have remaining, with the Lord's help, we're going to look at three more categories of exhortations to faithfulness. And these are found in verses 15 to 22. Pastor Matt read the whole section again for your recall's sake, but we're going to zero in on verses 15 to 22. And the next commands are concerning payment. Commands concerning payment. Payments, repayments, they made the headlines this week, didn't they? Um, by executive order, President Biden is granting $10,000 in forgiveness to individuals who have student loans who, who happen to make less than $125,000 a year. And that announcement might come as very good news to, to some of you, and I certainly don't intend to rain on your parade. Okay, I, I, I rejoice with you in some respects, but the, but the pe president's plan does prompt us to think a little bit about basic economics, doesn't it? You know, as they say, there is no such thing as a free lunch. Lunches always cost. So, so someone, somewhere, has to pick up the tab. And repaying $10,000 of the student loan debt of 45 million Americans costs something. It costs something. And that's not a controversial thing to say. It, it might be free for the folks that receive it, but that money has to come from somewhere. So far, the Biden administration hasn't told us exactly where that money's coming from, but it's certainly not coming from President Biden's personal savings account. Okay, we, ha we have a sneaking suspicion that we know exactly who's going to have to pay for this. It's going to be us. It's going to be the taxpayers. Now, I, forgive me if that illustration has distracted you at all. I don't actually want to talk about 
policy. But I, I do want to just ask you if you realize that the Bible all, often uses the language of basic economics when it speaks about sin. Financial terms are frequently used. You know, the language of the ledger is often employed when biblical authors want to teach us about sin. Take, take for example, uh, the passage that I shared with the young people on Wednesday, Romans chapter 6, verse 23, very well-known verse that says, the wages of sin is death. There, that's financial language. That's economic language to talk about sin as a wage. And Jesus himself teaches us to pray to our Father in, in heaven in this way, forgive us our debts. Once again, this is evil that's put in economic terms. And, and here's how it works. Our sin results in an enormous liability. Okay, our, our rebellion, our wickedness towards a holy and righteous creator, it, it's, it's racking up a debt that we couldn't possibly pay. We couldn't even begin to pay. But in order for us to be forgiven, somebody has to pay. You know, just like there's no free lunch, it's also true that there's no free heaven. The glory of the gospel is that Jesus Christ, God's own son, has taken up my debt and he's paid it all. You know, my, I, I trust that this is your testimony today as it is mine. My hope is in the Lord who gave himself for me and paid the price of all my sin at Calvary. I trust that that's your testimony as well. That's the kind of news that ought to be on the front page, you know, above the fold in every newspaper in the country. That God is, in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. That's record-keeping financial language. So that's just a little primer on the economics of evil. And we're, we've been talking about that on the vertical plane. But now we have to talk about the satisfaction for sin along the horizontal axis. In other words, what happens when someone sins against me or against you? I, I hope you can immediately see how practical this question is. Chances are you've been sinned against already today. I don't think it's probably a stretch to, to think that that's happened, to, to wonder if that's happened. Maybe your kid disrespected you as you were, you know, trying to give him instructions, as you were rushing out the door to, to get to church. Maybe your neighbor gave you a, a dirty look as you were backing out the driveway, all dressed in your Sunday best. Maybe someone cut you off. On your way here. Maybe someone cut you off when you were in the middle of an important conversation in the foyer. Or perhaps, perhaps there's someone here that, that is actively avoiding having a conversation with you in the foyer. They're, they're kind of going around and through different doors. Maybe someone said something incredibly insensitive and insulting to you. As I say, this is not a stretch. When you live in a cursed world with almost 8 billion other sinners, 
there's an endless variety of ways that you can be sinned against. And my point to you simply is that every sin has a cost. And that, that includes every sin that people commit against you. It's, it's costly. And so the question then becomes, who's going to pay? Who's going to pay for that sin? But, by the way, that's a similar question that you'll get anytime that you go out to dinner with a friend or another couple. You know, the waitress is going to want to know who does she give that, you know, padded fake leather envelope to? Who, who, who takes this? And the men, you know, this is a sort of wonderful thing to see in the wild. The men kind of like engage in a sort of tug of war with that check. And, and they'll say things like, no, no, let me get it. Or no, I insist. And, and then it goes back and forth until the person who insists the least kind of backs off and it's weird it's, it's it's a very strange thing to watch because when it comes to sunday lunch at the sunrise we always want to pick up the tab but when it comes to someone sinning against us on a sunday morning we have a completely different instinct we want them to pay they're the ones that need to bear the cost for their sin against us the, the only other option is that we would pick up the tab. And how do, why would we pick up the tab when we're the offended party? Why should it be on me to, to, to just eat it, to erase the debt by covering over the offense in love? That, but that would truly be Christ-like behavior, wouldn't it? But that's not our instinct. That's not what we naturally want to do. Our instinct is to repay. We, we're we're uh, hardcore bean counters. We're accountants when it comes to sin against us. We want to even out the ledger. We, and the math tells us that since they delivered evil upon us, they need to be repaid for that evil by evil being visited upon them. So if our teenager happens to be disrespectful towards us, we respond to that by being short with them and mean and snarky and, and distant, you know, for the next, I don't know, four to six hours. Or if our neighbor looks at us sideways, we want to pay them back by slandering them to the neighbors on the other side of them. If a brother or sister in Christ is rude or insensitive towards us, we'll certainly find some way to pay them back. We've got very sophisticated ways of dealing with that sort of thing in a church, but mark my words, we're gonna, they're going to pay. That instinct is so strong in us that Paul has to command us in verse 15, and notice there, the, the volume and the urgency of his tone, he says, see to it that no one repays evil for evil. Notice also that the instruction doesn't come to us individually or just merely personally. He, he's not saying make sure that you're not repaying evil for evil. Instead, what we have here is a corporate command. We're called to make sure that this is not happening among the congregation of believers. 
And it presupposes, doesn't it, that, that the church in Thessalonica is intimately involved with each other, that, that they're in each other's lives, in, that they're in each other's, up in each other's grills in a very godly and loving way, that they are, quote, walking together in brotherly love and exercising an affectionate care and watchfulness over each other to quote the language of our church covenant. That, that sounds abhorrent to, to modern ears. Why would, why would you ever sign up for that? Why would a church want to exercise that sort of oversight in a person's life? But I hope you can see that these are, these are biblical commands that come to us corporately. See to it that no one is doing this. Now, if the Apostle Paul had more time, he could have given us a fuller explanation for this exhortation. For example, he might have quoted the Lord himself, saying, vengeance is mine. I will repay. And uh, he might have said how, in light of that, you know, we ought to leave room for the wrath of God. That we ought not to be trying to execute that ahead of time and on our own. That's the Lord's to do, and he will do. He could have said all of that and more. The one thing that he does say, and uh, I'll grant you that it's very subtle how he says that this, is that what makes our evil repayment so heinous is the currency that Christians must use in order to make that payment. See to it that no one repays evil for evil. What would we repay evil with? Evil. More evil. And Christians must not traffic in evil. Indeed, the, the ultimate command in this whole passage is that we abstain from every form of evil. So the believer in Christ ought to abhor evil and not even want to go anywhere near it least of all to employ it as a sort of repayment for sin. I know that when, when sinned against, we, we often struggle to know what to do. We, we want to know how do we relate to the person that's hurt us. But here's one response that you can know for certain is out of bounds when someone sins against you. You ready? More sin. That's out of bounds. That, that's certainly not what the Lord wants you to engage in when you've been sinned against. More sin. What is the Christian currency? Not evil, but good. You know, Capital One regularly asks the question, what's in your wallet? And the way that a believer should answer that question is goodness. Goodness, our instinct towards repayment is, is partly sound. Okay, it's, it, it's, there's a, it's part of that that's a, a right instinct that someone needs to be repaid. But when we repay someone who sins against us, we are to use the currency of good rather than evil. Hence, we have the follow-up command in verse 15 to do good to one to one another and to everyone. Do you see that there's two groups there? 
that we need to do good to one another. And that refers to fellow believers when, within the context of the church. And then this is broadened to include even everyone who is outside of the church. So everybody, even unbelievers. And this is very reminiscent, I think, of something that Paul has recently written to the Galatians. He said, so then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. We are to prioritize doing good to fellow believers. In fact, speaking of debt, I'm reminded of something that Paul wrote to the Romans in chapter 13, verse 8. He said, owe no man anything. That's just generally good, sound, biblical advice on finances, but, but Paul wants to take you somewhere else. Owe no man anything except to love one another. Love is the ongoing debt that we owe to our fellow man, and especially that we owe to our brothers and sisters in Christ. Or how about this one, Romans chapter 12, verse 10. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. And I want you to just think, you know, picture this in your mind. Can you imagine what a local church might look like if everyone was engaged in a friendly battle, you know, similar to the, the kind that, that happens when that waitress sets down a check right in the middle of two dudes. Can you imagine what this church would look like if everyone was engaged in the contest to outdo one another in showing love and goodness and honor? If you want to apply this, think of someone in this congregation, I mean someone specific, put that, put that person and their image in your mind's eye, and then also get someone on your block or in your workplace or in your school. Get, get, a, get a person in your head, their names and their pictures, and now think, okay, what practical way can I honor that person and show love to them? And you want to apply this even more directly? Get someone's name and picture in your head who has recently sinned against you. And then go and do good to that person and seek to honor them. And I'll tell you what a, what a church full of people that are doing that, I'll tell you what that looks like. It looks, like, it looks like a church that has been founded upon the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. It, it, it looks an awful light, a lot like the Lord of the church, our Savior Jesus Christ, who died for us, you'll recall, when we were still sinners, when, when he, he did us eternal good while we were still shaking our fists in his face. What a powerful testimony to the gospel it would be if we heeded these apostolic exhortations regarding payment. And let's look secondly, or fourthly, depending on how you're counting, at some exhortations concerning prayer. I'll be using the term prayer in more of a general sense of calling upon and 
communing with God, you know, it doesn't just, it doesn't just involve the airing of our requests, although I don't want to downplay that in the slightest. We have a Heavenly Father who loves us and delights to hear our requests, and he, he delights to meet our needs according to his riches and glory. And often it's the case that we have not because we ask not. So please don't hear me saying anything that you think detracts from that. But in addition to that, I have in mind when I say prayer, just this whole posture of receiving from God and responding to God. Prayer in its fullness involves praising the Lord for who he is and thanking him for what he has done and pleading with him to do more. That's where our that's where our requests and our intercessions come in. And in this respect, it's, it seems to me that prayer is intricately connected with providence. Okay, it's, it's our interaction with what God in his sovereign purposes has determined to do in us and around us and through us for his glory. Prayer is like the active interaction that we have with all of that and so i'll ask you to keep that broader understanding of prayer in your mind as we look at a cluster of exhortations concerning it in verses 16 to 18 and perhaps you've noticed the shortness of these verses you know this uh this is right up there with jesus wept for the kinds of verses that kids like to be given to memorize in sunday school Okay, you know, obviously the the chapter and verse divisions in our Bibles, that's not inspired. That's a a much later addition to um, Bibles, you know, when they became published and became books to have in people's laps and in a congregation. It's just mainly for the the ease of being on the same page and being able to turn to a passage more easily. And in this case, the editors either thought that these exhortations should be separated into short little verses because they're so important. The other option, and I think this is probably the more likely one, is that the editors thought that these were all separate, unrelated commands. And so breaking them up into different verses has the effect of showing them kind of as miscellaneous exhortations. Now, I'd be on board with the first rationale, that it's because they're so important, but I'm, I wouldn't be on board with the second. These are very important commands, but they are not unrelated. In fact, if you look at the first and the third, so that's verses 16 and 18a, respectively, you'll notice that these are parallel ideas, that these are sort of bookends by which the middle command, and therefore all of them, are to be interpreted. Let me just remind you of the situation in Thessalonica. This is a brand new church made up of brand new baby Christians. And having believed the gospel, their their lives have radically changed. They've turned from idols to serving the one true and living God. And as a consequence to that, maybe some of you have experienced this in your own lives, they are, they're on the receiving end of all sorts of persecution and cruelty 
and hostility from former friends and family and employers and government officials. This is, this is a bad situation for these new believers. In fact, the persecution is so strong that Paul and his associates had to flee from the city much sooner than they intended to. And all of this is to say that the Thessalonians are made to endure some exceedingly difficult providence. And so it is, and so it will be with us. We, perhaps not the identical providence to what the Thessalonians had to experience, but difficult nonetheless. Yes, some of us will be made to experience persecution at the hands of the enemies of God. Some people are made to go through public exposure to uh, reproach and affliction, others to the confiscation of their property. Much of the time, we, we must endure just kind of the standard difficulties that come along with life in a fallen world. You know, the, the death of, of loved ones, the destruction of relationships, the prolonged pain and sickness, financial struggles. I could go on and on. These are hard. And, and they don't just befall the enemies of God. They come to his children as well. The question is, how will you respond? Given that prayer is a primary platform for our response, I suppose I'm asking, what will your prayer sound like? Grumbling, complaining, resisting. Maybe they don't sound like anything. Maybe it's just silence. Maybe you aren't praying during times of difficulty. You're, you're giving God the silent treatment. But what should our response be? And this, friends, this is not a pat answer. Don't read this as a pat answer. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. Our attitude and our response to the Lord in prayer and in practice ought to be marked by joy and thankfulness, no matter what the circumstance. And this verse assumes terrible circumstances. I want you to consider that central command. Pray without ceasing. Think about how to best interpret that verse. I've only met one person in my life who thought that that should be taken literally. He, he argued that 24-7, we should be before the Lord in prayer. Which meant, I think, that he was being disobedient during the time it took him to try to convince me of that. Anyway, that, that was silly. Thankfully, it's just one dude in my whole lifetime. As you know, most people take this more generally and understand that, that prayer ought to be kind of like the default position that we are regularly returning to, a sort of ongoing conversation with our Creator and our God. And of course, that's true. And I, I've really never felt that to be more true than in the last few weeks when I've been frequently regularly begging the Lord to release our brother from his captivity. I've, I've experienced this perhaps in a way that I never have before, what it means to 
pray without ceasing. But I want to give you a, a slightly different take on this exhortation to pray without ceasing. And this comes from paying attention to the exhortations that are on either side of it, that kind of hem it in. And I want you to notice the universal language there. So I'm talking about words and prefixes like all or always or, you know, unceasingly. That's universal too. And you can take this two ways. All, that can, that can be in reference to time or it can be in reference to circumstance. In other words, it can mean no matter when or it could mean no matter what. Do you, do you follow me? So usually we interpret this exhortation to unceasing prayer in terms of time. And, and then we generalize it. Like that the default use of our time ought to be turning over and over to the Lord. But I want to submit to you that the context leads us to think about prayer that doesn't cease depending on the circumstance. So what Paul is telling us is that our response to the Lord through the platform of prayer ought not to vary with the difficulty level of our situation. We ought in every circumstance, in all of them, to rejoice, to give thanks, to pray. And this means that the pressing problem that, that pain, that persecution that you're facing, d despite how you happen to feel, those are not situations that should induce you to withdraw from communion with Christ. Rather, those are the circumstances that ought to compel you to press in even closer to him. Speaking of the Lord, did you notice that astounding statement? that completes this cluster of commands is the last half of verse 18. This, this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. I don't, I don't know how that sounds to you, but it should be striking because we, we spend a lot of time trying to figure that out. You're like, wow, Paul, how did you know? That's precisely what I want to know. We're, always interested to know what God has planned and purposed for us. We're anxious to know the secrets of his divine will, like who he's picked out for us to marry and what job he would prefer that we take out of a number of possibilities. Which is that one that God has willed for us? But if we're expecting those sorts of things, then we're going to be sorely disappointed when we come to Scripture. When the Bible talks about God's will for your life, it almost never has to do with you trying to figure out what you should do with your life in the future. Rather, as is the case here, it always has to do with responding properly to what the Lord is doing in your life in the present. And I hope you're not disappointed by that because this is actually way better than if you had kind of the inside scoop of God's secret plan for your whole life. This is way better. It means that whatever God has for you providentially, whatever he has in store for you, whether it's easy or hard, this applies. 
his will for you and for me is that no matter the circumstances, that we respond with joy and prayer and thankfulness. Now, let's very quickly look at the last cluster of commands. I can't, I will not make this into a three-part sermon. So let's just look briefly. This last cluster is found in verses 19 to 22. And these are commands, exhortations concerning prophecies. I've only left myself a few minutes to deal with the most controversial part of the passage, which means that everything's going according to plan. (laughs) No, I'm talking, of course, about the gift of prophecy and whether that was intended by God to be something for, you know, the benefit of the early church in the apostolic era, a church that didn't have the benefit of a completed canon of scripture, New Testament letters all compiled to us that are the word of God. And so these folks are reliant on truth as it came to them from people who were inspired by the Holy Spirit. So whether whether that's happening or whether this gift is something that God has intended to mark the whole New Testament age throughout all the ages and, and still today. Generally speaking, The divide is between cessationists, that's a fancy word to describe people that believe that this particular gift has ceased, or continuationists, which is another fancy word to describe the people that believe that this particular gift continues on into the present. And I'm not going to attempt to solve this debate today, because to be very honest with you, it's not something that's so easily solved and dismissed as as easily as we think that it is. There's very good, solid evangelicals on both sides of this issue, and I think probably even within our, our own congregation, people that I respect very highly. So, so I'm going to instead, right now, I, I hope we can return to this at some point, but I'm going to just for now cop out a bit just to focus your attention on what was going on in Thessalonica. And thankfully, here's where I can be a peacemaker, thankfully both sides agree that prophecy was practiced at that time and in that context. There's absolutely no debate about that whatsoever. Again, in the absence of a completed New Testament full canon of scripture, As we've seen, the sometimes lengthy absence of the apostles from these churches. With all of those factors, you know, the Lord is very pleased to reveal truth to these believers through the Holy Spirit-inspired utterances of fellow believers. But there's another phenomenon to contend with, and that is the presence of false prophets, People who would come to town or perhaps people that would arise from that very congregation claiming that they had a word from the Lord, which later was proved to to be false and, and perhaps even very destructive to people's faith. And that's incredibly dangerous. And so what likely happened is that the Thessalonians probably got to the point where they were suspect of every prophecy 
and they were probably silencing it so as to, to guard against any potential error. That's what would constitute a despising of prophecy. And if the Holy Spirit happened to be burning, you know, with the fires of revelation, which might lead to revival, what, what happens when you're despising prophecy and disregarding a prophetic word would be similar to what a, a blacksmith would do when he takes a burning hot piece of iron and, he, and he's just been hammering it into a sword and then he plunges it into that oil bath. You know that, you can maybe hear that sound in your head right now. That's called a quench. And it, it has the effect of just immediately uh, bringing the heat and the, the, the flame off of that piece of material. And that's what it would be to quench a spirit that is the spirit that is burning with potential revelation uh, if you're a person that's just despising prophecy. So the Apostle Paul is teaching the Thessalonians that by shushing the spirit's prophetic word, they are quenching that spirit. And maybe all for good intention, but the result is that you're quenching the work of the Spirit. But here's the solution that Paul lays out for the Thessalonians. He says, basically, don't put prophecy to rest. Instead, put it to the test. Don't put it to rest, put it to the test. They, they were to test every word that came to them purporting to be a word from the Lord to see if indeed it was the authentic and and if it was in, in alignment with the truth that the Lord had previously revealed to them. If it was found to be true, then the command in verse 21 is hold fast to that truth. You know, hold fast to it like you've got gorilla glue on your hands. That's what you do with truth. But if it's false, if that word, if that prophetic word, quote unquote prophetic, is found to be false, if it's evil then the command in verse 22 is to abstain from it, to avoid it like the plague. Do you see? Now, you've been very patient, but in closing, I want to just give you just a couple of points of application. You know, in the era in which we live, where we have God's complete word in our hands, my personal conviction is that we shouldn't expect any kind of new revelation of truth. I, we sing, and rightly so, what more can he say than to you he, he has said? But the Holy Spirit is still burning hot with, with power and zeal to convict us of sin and to lead us into truth. And so if the Spirit happens to be convicting you today, of a specific sin, don't grieve him by ignoring it. If the Holy Spirit is exposing you to some aspect of the, the glory of the gospel or some insight into the word that you haven't considered before, and perhaps it's something that frankly is very uncomfortable for you, don't quench the Spirit by turning away from that truth. 
Perhaps you're here today as, as a person who has not yet bowed the knee to Christ. You, you are an unbeliever here today, and yet you sense maybe that the Spirit is moving in you ever so slightly, that you're beginning to see yourself for who you truly are, and it's, it's ugly. And, and you're beginning to see Jesus as beautiful when before you were happy to just put him out of your mind. Friends, that is the work of the Spirit. And if today you hear the Spirit's voice, do not harden your heart. Christians, regardless of whether you're a continuationist or a cessationist, you, you will no doubt come across Christians who claim to have a word from the Lord. They'll say things like, God told me such and such, or it was revealed to me this or that. And in that moment, you are commanded to test everything. And not just in that moment. Erase that. Always, that, that's a command that covers all of life. As you go to school, kids, and as you hear things from your teacher, as you are being catechized by your devices and social media and television, even as you hear the word of God proclaimed week by week, test everything. And anything that is evil and ugly and false, you are to avoid like the plague. But everything that is good and beautiful and true you're commanded to hold on to that with all of your might. So there you have it. Exhortations concerning peace, concerning patience, concerning payment, concerning prayer, concerning prophecy. And if you're wondering, how can I possibly keep all of these commands? There's more than just five. These are all clusters. There's a lot of commands here. How can I possibly keep them all? I urge you to come back next week as we look at the conclusion to this letter and I believe you'll have your answer but let me give you just a sneak peek so that you'll come back. You can obey and hold fast to the good and pursue peace because the God of peace is holding fast to you. Friends, go, go forth today loving good and doing good because of his grace to you and do it for his glory. Amen? Amen.